Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking progressive politics, and our guest is Ludovic Blaine. He's the executive director of the California Donors Table. That's a group of wealthy, progressive folks, and he's a very smart observer of California and national politics. We're going to be talking about why his group is going to be spending $10 million over the next year on progressive candidates in California even if it means that they're going to be going up against other Democrats. We will explore why and whether Democrats are, as James Carville recently said, quote, too woke. And now, here's my conversation with Ludovic Blaine. Ludovic Blaine, from your home in Berkeley to my home in Oakland, welcome to It's All Political. We, you know, in normal times, we'd be doing this in person. Fair enough, but they are not normal times. They are not, but they're, they're, we're moving towards normal, hopefully soon. Um, so you are executive director of something called the California Donor Table. That's a group of about, what, about four dozen wealthy, progressive Californians who invest in campaigns across California. Now, usually when we hear about rich people giving to campaigns, they're usually donating to either moderate Democrats or, their, or the status quo candidates uh, or Republicans. But, but this crew is backing progressives exclusively. Why is that? Well, I really appreciate uh, the set of donors that are members of the California Donor Table. They they make sure that we back progressives, mostly of color, uh, to make sure that Californians and frankly, the rest of the country and the world can live in a better place with more justice, more economic fairness, uh, better schools, better environment, etc. Uh, and I really... Uh, appreciate that they're focused not on themselves because they can pay for some of mm -hmm. those things for themselves, but they're focused on making sure that many more Californians have, have not just access, but have rights to the kind of justice that wealthy people uh, usually can uh, get with their privilege. So, so let's talk about who some of these people are. Uh, they are uh, Steve Phillips and his wife, uh, Susan Sandler from San Francisco, mm -hmm. Quinn Delaney and Wayne Jordan from Oakland. Both of these folks are, are known for being uh, early adopters, uh, if you will, for folks like uh, Barack Obama uh, when he ran for president, and and most recently, Stacey Abrams. Tell us a little bit about who these donors are. Sure. These are donors who are willing to uh, make risky investments in the pursuit of justice. Um, you know, there's one set of donors who will invest in Barack Obama or Stacey Abrams after they're on Oprah, uh, but Steve... Uh, which sure, that's that's fine to do. But um, Steve Phillips and Susan Sandler were investing in Stacey Abrams a dozen years ago, when she was an African American minority leader in a solidly red state, um, and so they're they're willing to pursue justice uh, in more risky ways that have opportunities for failure, uh, but are also more likely to have um, uh, really big outcomes. And so they were willing to do that out of state with folks like Stacey and Barack Obama willing to do that in-state by investing in places like Orange County and San Diego a dozen years ago, when those were solidly red places with no hope for justice. And now we have a San Diego Board of Supervisors that's certainly one of the most progressive ones in the state. Um, so by investing um, in the early stages and sticking with it through failures, uh, Stacy has been able to have incredible outcomes and we've been able to do that here in California as well. And they, they invest, they don't just Bigfoot and buy a bunch of TV commercials either. They, they invest in local groups that are doing the work 
on the ground in these places, correct? Yes, they invest in the local communities, often of color, um, that are grappling with changing power relationships and building power for themselves. And, and in that way, um, even if you lose an election in the short term, you're building power towards the long term. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, they're not distracted by shiny objects. Um, now, again, very often, the folks that they invest in, the strategies that they invest in, end up being shiny objects. So again, people would think not just of Stacey Abrams as being shiny, but Orange County in 2018 being shiny, that the road to a, a Democratic congressional majority went through OC. Um, but both Stacey and OC were not shiny in 2009. Uh, so getting them from 2009 to 2018 um, took a decade of solid investments in communities of color in those places, uh, steadfast support, encouraging other donors to give, um, and not just financial support, although that's really crucial, but some of it is just emotional kind of support, like we are with you, we're going to stick with you. Yeah, we assume you're going to fail along the way, but we believe in you and your ability to actually move mountains. Um, then when the mountains start to move, folks maybe with less faith and hope, um, can then jump in and see, say, oh, I see that mounting movement. I, I would like to get on this, to mix an analogy, this moving train. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but our, our anchor donors uh, have been the folks who have been willing to build the tracks, build the train, fund the groups to be on it, um, and fund what it takes to start the train moving. And that's the real hard work. So this year, this year, this cycle, I should say, 21, uh, 22, uh, you guys are bumping up how much you're investing to last year. You've invested about $5.7 million, I think. Right. And then this year it's going to be $10 million exclusively in California. Correct. Um, and, and you know, the, as you alluded to, this isn't, these aren't investments in the Bay area and, uh, Los Angeles, you know, those, those places have plenty of, plenty of money coming into them. You're going to places like, uh, the, the Inland Empire and the OC, uh, and, and again, why are you going to those places? Same kind of strategy of making sure that we're um, uh, making victories possible around the country. Again, when we were talking about Steve and, and Stacey in Georgia, um, the, our, our in-state strategy is to make sure that we're not just contesting in coastal blue areas, um, San Francisco, Oakland, LA City. Um, places like Orange County, San Diego, um, Inland Empire, the Central Valley, have lots of communities of color, um, have lots of issues. In fact, that's where much of California's biggest challenges are. That's where our policies fall the most short. Um, and that's where uh, folks need to make the most difference. And so we've been investing there um, in Black, Latino, API communities and environmental justice groups and immigrant rights groups, um, queer people of color groups, lots of different groups to both build their own individual power and then work collectively, um, not just to support whatever is the best candidate running, but actually start to recruit people to run, um, recruit people to focus on what specifically needs to be changed and how a newly elected person can implement that change um, uh, and um, make the most difference in what is actually America's heartland, which is inland California because many households have something that have been shipped through Amazon or some other online place from the Inland Empire. And many households, not just in California, but the country, have food grown 
in the Central Valley. And so our heartland um, has a lot of Black, Latino, and API folks in it. Um, and those are the folks that deserve to have more power to make things better for them and the rest of us. And now, as you say, one of your goals is to help the people of color, but but you're not afraid to fund someone who is running against even a fellow Democrat who is a person of color. That's 2016, the donor table backed Eloise Reyes, a Latina, against the incumbent Cheryl Brown, a black woman and a fellow Democrat, one of the you know few black women in the legislature. Now, I know some people are going to be listening to this and going, Ludovic, what, why the hell are you, uh, what's up with that? She was one of the, the few black women in the legislature. She's a Democrat. Why would you want to run her out of town? Right, well, we, again, I have to start with that question uh, that we back many, many black women for seats up and down the ticket. Um, but we don't just focus on identity. It's not just a question of diversifying who's elected by race, gender, sexual orientation. Um, we also want to make sure that they're going to actually serve folks like themselves. Um, and so uh, uh, Cheryl Brown um, got a million dollars in an independent expenditure from Chevron. Um, she was backed by... The- that's that's a, that's a lot of coin for an assembly race. Right, right. I mean, if you were running for Senate, I think you'd, U.S. Senate, you'd be happy for a million dollars from, uh, from, from a single company. So, um, uh, so she, and she had earned the nickname Chevron Cheryl. Uh, she was also backed by the realtors, um, I think she was backed by the NRA. I mean, she was backed by, by pretty bad folks. And so community folks there uh, wanted somebody better to represent them. Uh, and they found El- Eloise Reyes. Uh, we were happy to back the community groups that were backing her. Uh, many of our donors, I'm, uh, I think, also maxed out to her, but most of the money went to community groups to, su- to support her. Um, and they had rigorous debates, like what would it be like to lose the leading Black elected official in the region? Um, when folks realized how Cheryl was voting, um, uh, they realized that it, it wouldn't mean much at all because she was voting against their interests quite consistently um, and they wanted someone voting for their interests. So a bunch of black groups supported Eloise because they knew that Eloise would deliver as she had on environmental justice and a bunch of other issues in ways that not only Cheryl was not delivering, but she was an opponent uh, on many of those bills. So ex- explain the difference between a uh, a Democrat, uh, like a moderate Democrat, and a progressive. Where where do you all see the difference? Um, well, sometimes they segregate themselves out. So in California state legislature, uh, the business caucus, the business Democratic caucus, is called the Mod Squad. Um, they're invested in heavily by by business. Business funds a lobbyist to staff them, um, and. In the legislature, Democrats have a three quarters majority, so around 75%. So good, so Republicans cannot kill good bills because you have 75% of the legislature being Democrats. If they vote for a bill, the bill will pass. So the reason that good bills don't pass are not because of Republicans, it's because of Democrats. Many of them are Democrats funded by and kowtowing to business interests, whether again, they're realtors, oil, gig companies, et cetera. Um, and they usually aren't able to directly pass bad bills. They're just able to prevent good bills from passing. And so we follow the lead of the local groups on the ground, as well as some statewide groups that are comprised of those local groups who evaluate the scorecards of, of incumbents and vigorously interview challengers to understand what the likelihood is that they'll be courageous to, to not just run 
for the votes of low-income people of color, but actually then serve those communities when they're in Sacramento. California is a huge state. Um, so out of all the states that I've lived in and worked in, Sacramento feels the farthest away from most of the state. Um, um, but Sacramento is very, very powerful. Uh, and so we do need to make sure to think about each and every legislator we send there because California faces big problems and we need big solutions and we need courageous solutions. And that's what progressives bring to the table. We'll have more of my conversation with Ludovic Plain after this short break. And now here's more of my conversation about progressive politics with Ludovic Plain. You guys worked in uh, Orange County. You've focused on that place for years. And, uh, you know, as we know, two-thirds of Californians voted for Joe Biden. There's a supermajority in the legislature. There's uh, There hasn't been a Republican elected here uh, statewide since 2006. Why do you think that Democrats lost four House seats last year? Two in Orange County, one in L.A. County, northern L.A. County, and another in the Central Valley. What, what happened there? And, and tr- with Trump at the top of the ticket. Sure. So first, I think it's important to realize, because uh, we bandy about losing three or four seats, which seems like a huge number because some states only have three or four seats. Um, but California right now has 53 seats. So we went from Democrats winning about 86% of the congressional seats in 2018 to 80% in 2020. So just looking at percentage, you could see that it's not that big of a number. However, though losing those three to four seats did mean that the Democrats also almost lost the House. Yes. Three seats, the three to four seats that we lost or did not pick up here um, meant that the margin of the Democratic majority nationally is only five seats. So the country needs California to deliver at a higher rate than 80%, right? So... Um, and I try to make sure that donors understand we're not talking about 50, 52 percent. We're talking about moving from 80 percent to 86 percent. The reality is that um, I'm sure you had us on your map, but California was on everybody's fundraising map and nobody's spending map in 2020. So there was very little money spent on there probably was more money spent on fundraising in California than on out of state expenditures to campaign in California. For, for Congress, okay? Well, th- but those folks had, they had enough money. Like Harley Ruda, he had enough money. And Cisneros is a millionaire. He could have, he could have, he had yes, enough. No, money. no, so um, that's true too. Um, but also I think what happened uh, is the Republicans have a actually very strong pipeline um, that both uh, has folks who are already in office, are already in local or state office running for congressional offices. And, uh, at least most, if not all, of the Democrats who lost had not held an office before their congressional seat. So that's first, is that you had a set of Republicans who, even though they were challengers, they had a longer public history record than the Democrat, than the one-term Democrat in Congress. So that's one. And two, Republicans ran um, uh, more people of color in the contested congressional seats than the Democrats did two API women, one Latino. Um, and in Orange County, the uh, Democrats only ran one Latino and everyone else was white. So um, so it was a complicated um, ticket in that, particularly for Asian and Pacific Islander voters, um, 
the the people more like themselves that they saw in the ballot were actually Republicans, not Democrats. And so I think that Democrats need to make sure that we are running folks, um, that we have a pipeline from local office to state and federal office. So people run on their track record, one, and two, that we have a diverse set of those folks um, so that they, so that voters know what they're voting for because they're voting for someone to do something at a higher office that they already did in, in local offices. I'd say the last thing that happened in that was different in Orange County in 2018 versus 2020 was that many of the groups that we fund in Orange County in 2018 um, had enough funding to work both on the congressional races and a lot of the local races. And a key local race was uh, a Vietnamese candidate running for sheriff, who was a progressive sheriff. A progressive sheriff is rare in and of itself anywhere in the country, but a progressive sheriff running in Orange County, who was Vietnamese, turned out Vietnamese and other API voters for Democrats who then voted kind of reverse coattails, voted for Democrats for Congress, but he was the one turning out voters. Um, there was not, there was no high level API Democratic candidate in Orange County in 2020. So for Asian voters, they had to turn out as a group and vote against Asian candidates for the, who were all Republican for the non-Asian Democratic candidates. So it does really make sense to have a, an, a real mix of folks running so that different constituencies can see themselves on the ballot, vote for that person, and then that person signals to them who else they should vote for. So that was a main difference in Orange County between 2018 and 2020. It was partially money, but partially the actual mix of candidates who are running in the, in the, in the county. And uh, obviously, sheriff is countywide, so all the congressional seats in OC were covered under that countywide uh, sheriff race in 2018. Wow, that's an interesting, it's an interesting phenomenon. So, California is uh, set to lose one congressional seat uh, this year. First of all, where do you where do you think you know the state very well? Where do you think it's going to be coming from, and how will that change your plans? Uh, and because, of course, when you remove one seat. There's a massive uh, game of musical chairs. You will see Democrats on Democrats uh, all over the place. And, and of course, there's also uh, the, the lines are also being uh, drawn, redrawn for uh, redistricting for, this, for the uh, legislature. But let's talk about the House. Yeah. So for the House, um, the House, uh, um, California lost one seat, for, lost a seat for the first time ever in history. Uh, so it's an unfamiliar territory. We also have a independent commission that will be redrawing the lines. And the key part of that is that unlike everywhere else where the lines are drawn basically for partisan outcomes, you draw some lines to make to help the incumbent and you draw other lines to beat the incumbent. Um, here, the commission doesn't do that at all, actually. So, um, so that means, as you just described, that we're likely to have um, current Democrat, Democratic congressional incumbents potentially drawn into the same districts and somewhat randomly given kind of the demographic changes that have happened over the last 10 years. Um, and then losing one seat means that um, someone is left standing and will have to run somewhere else. Um, so we'll be looking out for two to three types of problems. First, um, high profile dem on dem races because we have top two elections, which means that we could have dem on dem not just primaries in the spring election, but Democrat on Democrat fall elections. Um, and so 
we'll be wanting to um, minimize the drama and vitriol in, in those races um, where there's not much. Good, good, good luck with that. Right, exactly. Uh, where there's not much ideological difference between the two candidates. Um, so that's one set of races. Second set of races um, uh, that are contestable uh, between Democrats and Republicans. We'll want to make sure not to have a repeat of what happened to Pete Aguilar in the Inland Empire in 2012, when the two Republicans split up 49% of the vote and the four or five Democrats split up 51% of the vote, but the top two vote getters were the two Republicans at 25 and 24%. Um, and so those two Republicans went into the general election, even though the majority of voters voted for Democrats in the primary. Um, and so we'll want to make sure that that's not happening by, by figuring out who the best Democratic candidates are and solidly investing in them. Um, and then lastly, where there's like crisper races between a Democrat and a Republican, we'll want to be making sure that the Democrat wins. Um, I'd say we have a different strategy for Congress than we do for the state legislature. In Congress, because the Democratic majority is so small, um, and now it seems with uh, reapportionment amongst the states that you just described. California is one of the blue states that lost the seat. I think our seat that's lost will be somewhere around LA, somewhere, somewhere between like LA, San Diego. Um, uh, if the 2020 election was run, the way the seats are, are about to be allocated for 2022, the Democrats would probably have lost the House. Um, so, wow. yeah, so federally we'll want to make sure that we elect as many Democrats as possible from Congress, for, from California to Congress, because we need to maintain that majority. Um, we have a different strategy in the state legislature where we're trying to make sure that we have progressives. Um, and progressives from California do matter in Congress, but they only matter if there's a majority. So the majority is necessary for then the progressives to have leverage. Um, almost half of the, uh, Democratic Congress people from California are in the Progressive Caucus, which is double the percentage right. of the rest of the nation. So, so progressives from California are a key part of progressives in Congress. Uh, but we need to make, but that only works if we have a Democratic majority. So, so we'll be prioritizing the Democratic majority and then secondarily pushing as many progressives in as possible at the congressional level. Wow. So I want to talk to you about the, as, as you know as we get more deeper into the campaign season. James Carville said something the other day. I'm sure you, you heard oh. him when he said this. When he said one of the problems with the Democratic Party is that it's quote too woke. Um, now I had, I had Jamie Harrison, the the new chair of the DNC, on the podcast the other day, and I asked him what he said, what he thought about that, and he disagreed. He said, but he he did say that Democrats need to convey what they're for in simple language. And, and Harrison told me, he said, quote, let's stay away from the faculty lounge talk <laughs> and talk to, uh, talk to people like they're, they're people in the barbershops and beauty shops talk. What's your take on, on to translate, first of all, what Carville's saying here and what's your, what do you, what's your take on that? Sure. So, um, you know, James Carville is a quote machine. Um, Yes, he is. But I don't know that he is a viable operative anymore. Um, so, um, and th there is a difference between the two. Um, there is. Um, so I don't see most candidates running on 
that they're woke. Like that, that's, that's, that seems to be a, like an echo chamber thing of, um, which is fine and entertaining, but, um, uh, but I look at it this way. Um, people in the Inland Empire had a choice between someone who was preferred by Chevron, the realtors, NRA, and a bunch of other big businesses, and another candidate who was also of color, although of a different race, um, who, was, who said that she was gonna continue championing, championing undocumented folks and folks with asthma and folks who have low-income jobs, et cetera. And we now have a progressive, the first Latina state majority leader, assembly, uh, who's progressive from the place in the country that has the most Amazon warehouses. Um, and so you would imagine that the person who represents that area would be representing Amazon because they would pay her off and do it. Um, but instead she's holding Amazon accountable for their tens of thousands of workers who are underpaid. So some people would call that woke because yes, she does notice the race and ethnicity of those folks and their income level and that um, they are not only oppressed in Amazon in the warehouses because they're not paid enough, but also because of all the buses and stuff, they have a lot of asthma and all these other things um, and that there's racial disparities. So yeah, I guess that's woke. Thank goodness she's woke because actually those folks really do have asthma. They really don't have health care and all those things are true. So, um, so what might be woke to someone who um, has enough privilege to not need woke people to protect them um, uh, is thank goodness they're advocating for me because actually up until now, people said that we're woke when, when what we're demanding is kind of simple justice. Um, not even that radical, you know, I mean, it's just simple kind of, let's make sure that all workers are covered by the same protections. Let's make sure all schools have the same opportunities. Let's make sure um, that regardless of what language you speak, you can access the services that everybody else can access. So, so to me, the, the, the woke pitch is another, um, uh, I don't know what the, I feel like um, people said that about Martin Luther King and, and now they probably celebrate his birthday. <laughs> so history moves on. <laughs> Before woke was even, a, was even a thing, was even a word. Was the yeah. predecessor for woke. For the pre whatever the, you know, the equivalent of woke was back then. Uh, the, uh, you also, I meant to ask you about um, the, uh, you're also be talking about electing, and you, I think you alluded to this earlier, progressive prosecutors. Are you going to be jumping in on the Bonta race? Would he be someone that you'd be looking at? Or is that, do you want to focus more uh, micro-local type of stuff? Right, well, we'll be doing uh, more DA races. We played a key role in helping to elect uh, several district attorneys in 18, 19, and 20, Contra Costa, San Francisco, and LA. Um, the, uh, Rob Bonta is great. He was progressive in the state legislature. Um, he just got to the AG office. We expect him con to continue to do great work there. Um, one of the Republicans that filed against him is someone that we tried to beat in Sacramento in 18. Um, it's Emory Schubert you're speaking of. Right. And, um, uh, and if she hasn't called him woke yet, I expect that to happen soon. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, so I suspect that we'll be getting into that race. Um, um, the time for the kind of law and order pitches in California, that time is, is come and gone. Um, people do really want to have better justice systems, um, have justice and other supportive systems that actually 
enable people to not have to do crimes and help them to get better after they do that. Um, and instead of spending a lot of money punishing folks with them not improving while we're spending those billions of dollars, spend that money in smarter ways. So, so I do suspect that if, if it's needed, that we'll be getting into that race. Um, it's also true because uh, just like one of Caitlyn Jenner's first attacks was against the progressive DAs in California. It was a, a misguided attack, but, but, but it correct attacked, but it was, it was nonetheless an attack. An attack. Yes. We, she needs to do her homework a little bit. Right. Right. Just a simple Google, but we understand that Republicans up and down the state will be, will be using the attack on the progressive DAs as something to run against. And so, um, and since most of the DAs will be up in 2022, um, having Rob Bonta at the head of the ticket in terms of on the criminal justice side and having the progressive DAs aligned with him, uh, we hope that they'll be able to run as a slate and people will understand not only do we want somebody like Bonta at the state level, but we also want local DAs who are aligned with him so that we can have better justice. Okay. Uh, one last thing. So some people may, may come away from this and, and Democrats, I, I should say, might be coming away from this. Like, well, why why focus all your all this attention on 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 fighting Democrats? Shouldn't shouldn't you be focused exclusively on on Republicans? Two things to say to that. Um, uh, where Republicans are the problem, then absolutely we focus on on beating Republicans. Uh, and our goal has been to skip over the moderate Demo- the moderate but diverse Democratic stage. So in San Diego, they went from a four to one Trump Republican Board of Supervisors last year to a three to uh, not just Democratic Board of Supervisor majority, but progressive Board of Supervisor majority, uh, where they're now one of the most progressive ones in the state, certainly better than Alameda, LA, and a bunch of other places. So so where the problem are uh, Republicans, we work to beat them. But anyone who had um, concern in their gut seeing what Dianne Fein- how Dianne Feinstein engaged with various of the Supreme Court appointments um, and wished that she were better. Um, that was a dem on dem issue because there was a better alternative, Kevin DeLeon. Um, and frankly, anybody who is happy to see Kamala Harris, both in the Senate and then as vice president, um, should remember that the person she beat was an incumbent Democratic Latina Congresswoman, Loretta Sanchez, who who uh, is a blue dog and would have been problematic and nowhere near as good as Kamala. So um, the country both relies on California to ensure that Democrats have a majority in the Senate and in the uh, House, um, but also they rely on us to send progressives amongst the Democrats to lead the fight. Um, and each time we're let down uh, by a California Democrat um, is a sad day, not just for us, but for the country and, and the world. So um, uh, so it is more challenging to um, hold Democrats accountable all the way to beating them with better Democrats. Um, but in a blue state, that's the only way to get better. Uh, and uh, that's both true in the coastal places that are run by Democrats, San Francisco, Oakland, LA City, now San Diego, um, and the inland places um, that are run by Republicans who need to be beat 
by progressive Democrats. Uh, so, so if I was in Alabama, I might be happy with some of our moderate Democrats. But the fact that Georgia elected a Jewish guy to the U.S. Senate and a black guy to the U.S. Senate, and everybody understood that that campaign was run by a black single woman, um, and many and there's many progressive aspects about all three of them. Uh, that's something that saved the country, um, and it's progressives who saved the country. Uh, and and we need to expand the percentage of progressives within the Democratic Party elected officials. And uh, one last thing: do do you see some of the, the the so far progressives on the national level have been? You know, everyone has been sort of playing together well in terms of the Democrats, but that's that's about the change, don't you think? As soon as this as this um, infrastructure bill starts moving down the road a little bit, and uh, Biden wants to, you know, a deal at all costs. Uh, what's your uh, prediction slash concerns slash <laughs> wishful thinking? I guess right on that. You know, I mean, we we barely got fifty votes in the Senate. Um, and um, and so a key part of progressivism um, is making sure that you actually do deliver change to people. It's not just about fighting for change or being seen to be bombastic, things like that, but actually making sure we're delivering things. And so when you have a razor thin, uh, literally razor thin majority in the Senate, and then a very thin majority in the House, it becomes very hard to pass progressive legislation where you have one or two U.S. Democratic senators um, who are unsure about, unsure about whether they want to uphold Senate traditions or knock down Confederate voting restrictions. <laughs> um, for most Democrats, if that's the choice, the choice should be obvious. So, um, so I don't, but I don't see Democrats in disarray. Um, uh, Democrats pushing each other on issues is how we move forward. California has a lot of practice with that. Uh, I think that both the progressive legislators from California and elsewhere um, are constructive enough to figure out how to fight for what we need and then settle for what can get gotten in that period and move forward. So, so I don't, so I don't view the. I see some battles, but I don't see fighting or. You know, I see constructive battles where folks are figuring out not just what it takes to deliver real change now, but how to set up Democrats to elect more during the midterm. So we have um, larger margins and we don't need every single Democratic vote to pass a simple bill. Also, I, I do feel I will always have to remind folks and we get not a thing from Republicans other than traitorous um, opposition. Yeah, not, not a lot of crossing the aisle on, on right. Uh, so it is either either house. Right. So it is either that the Democrats have to literally be the responsible adults by themselves and not be able to pick up a single Republican for anything that benefits folks who have less than a million dollars. Ludovic, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. Next time we will do this in person. All right. Very much looking forward to it, Jeff. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Ludovic for joining us today. I'd like to thank the King Webby Award winning producer, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And of course, a shout out for our fabulous theme music. That's Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, 
Whether you're woke or have pulled the covers over your head, it's all political. <laughs>